Hey, Salem Heights. So glad that you could be here with us this morning. Whether you're here at church or at home, what a great day to worship our good God. For all the men out there, reminder, we got men's conference coming up. So if you would like to join us, please sign up on the website or call the church office for more information. And lastly, I want to encourage you, let, let's all be praying for our country in this season, what's going on in our world. And we know from our Thrive passages this last week that Jesus is on the throne. He's never left it. He's the one that's always been in control. So let's praise him now here this morning. Well, good morning, Salem Heights Church. We're so glad to have you with us this morning. And as we prepare to worship, I just wanted to read this verse. It comes out of 1 Corinthians 5, and it says, He died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And church, we know that we live not in who we were, but in who we are in, which is Christ. He is the one that we put our hope in. So let's sing this together. Sing, I believe. I believe in the sun. I believe in the risen one. I believe I overcome by the power of his blood. I would 
Psalm 86 says that someday all of the nations will bow and praise to the Lord. Let's sing this to him. And all the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry, these bones will sing.
again Father, we thank you. That our life is not in who we were, that our life is not in our own efforts, that our life is not in how we measure victory or failure, Lord, but our life is victory in you. Father, you give us that life and you give us that hope that is everlasting and we praise you for it. 
Lord, I pray as we get ready to hear from your word, that you would work in our hearts, that you would prepare us to hear what you have to say. In your name we pray, amen. Well, good morning, Salem Heights. We're going to be in Acts chapter 13 once again in our series we're calling Christianity on the Grow. I pray that your time in worship was sweet. And now as we spend this time in the Word, um, I just want to remind you that we're entering into not just a, a new series, uh, but it's a re-engagement with where we were before COVID hit. And so we really believe that just like we were in the book of Acts as we were heading into all of the mess, we're now back in the book of Acts. And we believe as God is beginning to allow things to happen that will move us out of the mess. And we think it's an appropriate time to be studying these things. In uh, the book of Acts, chapter 13, we see a transition that's happened. We've gone from a moment where we were focused on Peter and the church in Jerusalem and the scattering that's happened now to a moment in Antioch where the church as we know it was born. Churches planting other churches, evangelism that begins to go around the world, and the emphasis in the second half of this book, the book of Acts, is on Paul and his calling and activity, and that gets really highlighted in the verses that we're going to read this morning. Acts chapter 13, and we're going to start with verse 4. It says, so, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they, that is, Paul and Barnabas, went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, arriving in Salamis, and they proclaimed the word of God to the Jewish synagogues. They also had John as their assistant. When they had traveled the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bargesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, that is the meaning of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, stared straight at Elymas and said, you are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil, an enemy of all that is right. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Now look, the Lord's hand is against you. You are going to be blind and you will not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and darkness fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then... When he saw what happened, the proconsul believed because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Here we have a story that is a shocking one. Paul, just being sent out by the Spirit of God, Saul and, and Barnabas have gone to this new location, Salamis, and instantly encounter opposition. The opposition is significant, and I don't want to just camp on what happens with this sorcerer, but I want to make some observations 
about missions and the church. In chapter 13 and 14, we not only see Saul and Barnabas sent out by the church to plant new churches, but we see some elements that are in every single missions program from that point forward. Some observations that remain true today. The first observation that I would have you see in this chapter that is relevant today when we take a look at missions is this, and that is that we should only move in response to the Spirit, not self-talk. Saul and Barnabas are sent out. We know in the first three verses uh, in this chapter that they were in a prayer meeting. It says that they were praying and fasting. The Spirit of God said, send these men out. They continued to pray and fast, and then they did send those men out. And at the beginning of this section, verse 4, it says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. Anytime Scripture repeats something, it wants you to catch the emphasis. It was the Spirit of God. It was God's activity. It was God at work in the people that wanted them to move forward. There are times and seasons in a church where we, we begin to see what is happening in the world around us, or maybe we see even something that is exciting that is happening at another church. We, we begin to see somebody that is working with the poor. We begin to see somebody that is having great effect in their evangelism, or we begin to see a, a children or youth ministry program that is really popping. And, and, and we might even say in our heart, man, we want to be a part of that, or we want to do that, or we want to have that success, and we begin to brand success in our own minds. Energy can take over at that point. A group of people can say, we need to do this, we need to make it happen, and begin to set those plans in motion. And it is possible for us to do many things in a church, and maybe even get people to come as a result. But the critical key in these chapters is the phrase, they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. What the Spirit starts and stirs, what has His power in it, will flourish. There will be a lot of activity without sweat, one author said. You're not going to see them worried about how it's going to get done because the Spirit of God is the one that has been energizing it from the beginning. It must be started by the Spirit, and that's what we see. But a second thing I want you to note that's true in missions today is that if you want to reach the world, cities are a good place to start. We live in a city. In fact, you do not have to go far to do ministry in Salem. One guy who has done a lot of work in cities and has asked people to gain a heart for cities is Tim Keller. And he was speaking to a couple of missions organizations about the fact that cities should still be the center of their focus. And he was pleading with them to consider the value of a city. And he was using the early church as his model. Uh, Tim Keller had made these observations. In fact, he said, why? Why? The reason for ministry in cities, he says, the reason for ministry in cities mirrors what we've seen about the nature of cities. Cultural cruciality, he says. In the village, you might win one or two of the lawyers to Christ, but if you want to win the legal profession, you need to go to the city where you have law schools, law journals are published, and things of the like. 
If you want to be able to encourage great masses, you, be, you go to the cities where the center of learning is, where the people who are being trained and being sent out are taught. You go to those places. You impact those people. He said glo global cruciality is also important. In the village, you can win only single people group that is there. But if you want to spread the gospel into the 10 to 20 new national groups and languages at once, you go to the city where they can all be reached through the lingua franca of the place. There is something that we now know of as the 1040 window. That is from on a map, if you look at a globe and you have 10 degrees north of the equator up to 40 degrees north of the equator, in a little band, that little window right over Africa and into Asia is where 90% of the unreached people groups in the world live. It's also where the majority of the people live in poverty, on average under $2 a day that they are living on. It is also where, where darkness and where oppression reign. Many of those places, it's actually illegal to go and share the gospel with them in those locations, these places that are dark and hurting and in need of Jesus. But do you want to know where they send people to be educated? They send them into our cities. The majority of the big cities and nationalities that are found in the 1040 window have sent people into America, into our major cities, in order to get training and learning. They come right here to our doorstep, to places where you and I could share the gospel with them. And as we talk with them, they go back to their home countries where we would not be invited, but where they go because they're native to that place. And they can share the gospel. The reason that we look to a city is we can actually impact cultures far flung around the world by just reaching a neighbor right here. He also says that it's personal cruciality. In the village, very little changes. People live in stable environments. Thus, they are suspicious of any major change. Because of diversity and the intensity of cities, urbanites are much more open to radically new ideas like the gospel. Because they are surrounded by so many people, unlike themselves, and they're so much more mobile and subject to change, urbanites are far more open to change and conversion than any other kind of resident. Here we have people who are open to new ideas and open to the conversation that you might bring up about the gospel. If you want to reach the world, cities are a good place to start. But also, another thing that we see is you're starting a missions uh, program. If we are going to try and reach the world, another observation that comes from this chapter is this. And that is we need to be prepared. Anything worth doing will encounter opposition. It says here that they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to Seleucia from there. They went to Cyprus. They arrived in Salamis. It, it seems like everything is just going smoothly. We're going from point to point to point. But they settle down for a moment, and they have an exciting call. Somebody sends them a note that says, a local proconsul, um, an advisor to the senator, is right here. He is a man of great power, and he wants to hear about Jesus. He heard what you are saying, and he wants to hear the word of God. 
Imagine how exciting that must have been to Saul and Barnabas to get that invitation, to get that note. But as soon as they are on their way, a sorcerer comes in. Now, when we think of sorcerer, we think of Harry Potter and all kinds of stuff that we bring into it with our culture here. But back then, magi or wise men were always found around places of power. Just for a moment, I want you to think about this. How often do we find sorcerers and senators in the same place? You might be shocked even today. These magi were men who said they had secret knowledge of the future. Let me just give you a list and ask you to think about it for a moment. The magi said, I have inside knowledge. It comes from hidden sources. I have knowledge of certain tragedies that are on the near horizon, and if you listen to me, a crisis will be averted. You need me in order to make those decisions. It doesn't seem like much has changed. In fact, folks like this creep into places of power in order to steer those that are in power. It has happened for as long as power has been a problem. How do you keep your mind right? How could a leader keep their mind right? What scripture indicates is the word of God was about to come to a man who was very intelligent. It would shape the way that he thought. It would impact the way that he made decisions. I read recently about a man, it said, who had 90% of his brain missing. It was a shocker to him. He came in feeling like one of his legs was giving him a little bit of trouble. He was in pain, and they did some x-rays, they did some investigation, and, and didn't find anything wrong with his leg. And so they began to do some further investigating, and they actually did a brain scan. And when they saw what was going on inside his head, they were shocked. Over 80% of his brain was not there on the scan. What they found out was that when he was a child, he had a problem with water on the brain, and they had actually uh, installed some drain tubes in him that they took out when he was a preteen, thinking that he was past having some concern. He had gone on in life. He had gotten married. He had children, was just starting to have some pain. But in the scans, it revealed that the gray matter, the, the parts of his brain that were actively keeping him alive, um, were pressed against the edges of his skull, and there was just a little bit of brain running a great big man. Now, this seems like a, a hard reality to swallow, but a spiritual application is important. How is it that we don't have our mind filled with wrong things? How is it that we don't have our spiritual mind replaced with things that should not be there or our spiritual mind so deeply impacted by other things that it cannot function the way that it is supposed to? Scripture indicates how can we, a young man keep his way pure by keeping it according to your word. The Word of God is the drain tube that gets rid of all the filth and all of the junk and all of the false advice of the world that causes that to be drained away so that we can operate the way God intended for us to operate, so that we see Him clearly and make right-minded decisions. Right thinking was about to come to this senator, 
And this sorcerer, this magician, this false leader was trying to get in the way. This is consistently a pattern. That brings us to another point, though. And that is, whenever we go out in missions, we're going to encounter hard hearts. But a hard heart is no hindrance to God. I want you to think very carefully about some of the people in your own life and ask yourself for a moment, are there some folks who you have shared the gospel with or who you have prayed over, but in your heart you actually say, I don't know if it's possible for them to ever yield to Jesus. I want you to listen to this testimony from a young gal who came to Christ out of atheism. Five years ago, if you'd have told me I'd be sitting here, you know, telling my story of, of salvation, I, I would have laughed right in your face and I would have told you you're a crazy Christian. I didn't believe there was hope. I didn't believe in true love. Five years ago, I didn't even believe in myself. I heard people use the term atheist, and when I decided I knew what that meant, it just was kind of stuck in the back of my mind. Like, I think that's where I fit better than anything. It was more just, there's no such thing as God. Like, if God really cares about people, like all these people say he does, he wouldn't let children starve and cities burn down, and he wouldn't let people get into situations where they, where they hurt each other. I just thought Christians were meddlers and they took away the rights of people and they were just trying to create this new world order. I, I really viewed Christians as evil. I became really combative. Like, I'm not gonna let them get away with this. This is a fairy tale, this is crap. Like, they cannot just come and fill people's heads with this fantasy. I faced life feeling like every day should be awesome and it should be fun, but I did that with drinking and drugs and boyfriends. And if I died, I just, I was buried. That was, that was all I really believed. I met my best friend who happened to be a Christian through a past relationship. She was the first friend that really started to talk about Christianity in a different way to me. I remember she, had, she took the, her jacket off and she had this shirt on with bright pink lettering. It said, Jesus is my homeboy. I was like, is that, isn't that blasphemous? <laughs> Can you really say that? and she just lived it. I mean, that was about the closest I had seen to someone really just demonstrating a love for Christ rather than just duty to him. And man, I just remember thinking like, how am I ever gonna be friends with her? If, if we're so divided on these things. I mean, we had debates. We had heated debates. I really let her have it. I was like, that is the most crazy hogwash I've ever heard. And because I knew her personally, I felt like she really did have my best in mind, that she wanted to break through those hard things with me. And in that time, I met a really awesome guy, and we got close, but uh, probably a little too close because um, I got pregnant only a few months after we met. I decided um, I gotta get rid of this problem. I went to a clinic and heard any of the options I had. And that was where a lot started to change. There was this picture this woman handed me, and it was just a dot. But she explained to me that that was a, a baby. I just started to wonder, like, how on earth that was going to become a life. You know, this had to be something bigger than me. Up until then, I had been so snarky to Christians. But I started to lean in a little more and wonder if maybe what they were saying was true. My best friend had approached me. She basically said, I, I understand you're really struggling for answers right now. She was, I just want to tell you, like, what if you just gave 
Christianity try. She says, because I go to church and I pray and you'll never know until you know, but I can tell you there are answers. And she says, if you just gave it one month, you know, just come to church and then you can just say at least you tried. I realized she cares more about this faith than, than being a popular friend right now. That said a lot, because we had been through a lot. For some reason, it just felt like if I could just go, maybe I'll hear something, or at least I can just be alone for a little bit and think. I hid myself up in the balcony, and I actually owned a Bible from all my years of trying to disprove, and the worship team uh, performed Canons by Phil Wickham. There were certain words I vividly, you know, remember reading them on the screen for the first time and just thinking, wow, that's, that's what I feel. You know, having been an atheist and, and believing in science, to, to read the moon and the stars declare who you are, it took me away from that happenstance and it, it put me in the position that just like I was created and my baby was created, you know, th this whole world, this whole universe was created and they all proclaim what, what a power he is. And on a personal level, you know, it's, it says, I'm so unworthy, but still you love me. For me, this didn't make any sense, you know, he can redeem good people, you know, people who've made little mistakes and messed up and didn't say their these and thous or something like that. He doesn't redeem women who are pregnant out of wedlock, who have a path of emotional carnage behind them. And uh, this song was just reminding me, you know, even if you're unworthy, he loves you. You know, we're all unworthy. You know, that's the beauty about grace. It, it's a gift. You, you don't get to pick and choose who gets it. You know, you just accept it. And it was after that song and a really powerful message, I finally accepted Christ. Um, but I remember just sitting there because it wasn't so easy. Because, I mean, it was almost like I felt bad for him to have to take on everything I lived. It's like I felt bad that Jesus <laughs> had to own, like me. And I just remember holding my belly and holding my breath and I just said, are you sure that you want to save this one? Are you sure? I mean, I called him names. I laughed behind his back. I mocked him in public and I realized I'm no different than all those people that were right in front of him, you know, as he bled. And if he went for them, you know, he, he went for me too. You know, it's, it's a struggle to believe every single day that um, Jesus really did die for me. And um, when someone challenges what I believe now, I, I remember being that person. I remember taking any opportunity I had to just stick it to the Christian. But now, I mean, my faith is so big. It's, it's like, I know where you've been. I, I know that feeling. And I, I promise if you give me just a few minutes, you know, I'll talk about it with you. I try to just get them one step closer, one question closer. As much as I know about what it's done for me, it's worth a shot to try to get them to come over to. Before we move too quickly on, I just want you to pause for a moment and digest what you've heard. Think about where this gal was. Think about what it is that God did. And think about the hope that she now presents to others. Maybe this morning, the only thing that you get out of this message is that God can reach a hardened heart. But one of the things that we should be reminded of is there, there is no situation. The God can't move in, change, shape, and win victory. 
He is a God that gets the glory, and he gets glory in hard places. Only God could win in this story in Scripture and in the life that we just heard from. Two other observations this morning before we go. First one is this. God's works will elevate God's word. When you see this profound response, when something amazing happens and it's obvious that God's fingerprints are on it, what is the result supposed to be? It says, then when he saw what happened, that is when the proconsul saw that God actually moved in and darkened the eyes of this man who said he could see, did to him the same thing that he did to Paul. He moves in. And he does something shocking, and it's evident that it's the hand of God in that place. Look at what he elevates, though. It says, when he saw what happened, the proconsul believed. That means he responded to the gospel. He believed in Jesus because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. What happened that was significant, didn't elevate the power of Paul in his mind. He didn't begin to worship Paul. He didn't begin to crave more of that power. When it was obvious that God had moved in, it was the teaching, it was the word of God that gets magnified. We need to be reminded that if something significant has happened and it's God that did it, he will elevate his word as a result. They will look to his word for truth. If somebody has a shocking moment and they believe that it's God that has led them to repentance, you will hear them quoting scripture, not someone else. They will be lifting up and be astonished at the teaching of the Lord, at what he says about them, not their own imaginations. A final observation this morning is this. Our activity shapes our identity. Because this comes up later on, we'll develop that a little bit more uh, in the chapters that come. But I want you just to think about this. Saul, it says, was also called Paul and was filled with the Holy Spirit. In this moment, they used both of his names. The activity that he was about, sharing the gospel with those that were not in Jerusalem, sharing the gospel with this man that was an outsider to Judaism, but who wanted to respond to Jesus. He goes from having a Jewish name to a Roman Greek name. He goes to a name he is called by the people that he is reaching out to. His identity begins to change. What is it that people would call you? If the activities that you've been involved in over the last two years were to be the identifying mark of what you believe, of who you are, what would your new name be? Paul was called Paul because he identified with the people he was reaching out to. Everyone said, that's the man he is. He was a follower of Jesus that was transformed and looked just like those he was trying to reach. As we wrap up this morning, I just want us to think not about the church's mission program, but about our own. 
Who is it that God has called you to reach? Who is it that he has laid on your heart? Who have you maybe even given up on? And who would you pray for? I'm gonna pray that each one of us will be mission-minded in this season. In a world that is filled with turbulence, instead of us just seeing chaos and fear, we need to consider that the heart of the world around us has been tilled and is ready to receive new things. We have an opportunity to share the gospel that with those that are broken, hurting, and in need. And we should take that opportunity. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would fill us with a sense of hope, of mission, and of anticipation. You have chosen to place us here in this season. You didn't ask a different group of believers to go through these hardships. You asked us to go through these times. You've asked us to be your voice. You've asked us to be your hands and feet. You have asked us to pray, to wait, and to respond to the moving of your spirit. But also, Father, you've asked us to go to share, and to make sure that we proclaim the good news. Help us to do that with boldness, with eagerness, but Father, help us to do that moved by you to do what only you can accomplish. Father, we ask that you would help us in this season as your people to be successful sharing the gospel because we are moved by your spirit. Give us grace to see what we should be about and to do it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.